back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minute Post, we examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm Megan Coleman from MASH Minute. I'm Tierney Steele, also of MASH Minute and far too many other shows. <laughs> and today we are joined by a new guest to help us examine this William Wyler-directed film, Please welcome to the Movies by Minutes community, Sarah Kugel. Hello! I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Sarah has been having to hear about these podcasts from me for a few years now, (laughs) and I finally got her on one. Woohoo! Yay! (laughs) I'm so honored. I'm just so glad because I mentioned we were going to be talking about the best years of our lives, and uh, why don't you tell us your history with the film? I will. Well, um, it's one of my favorites. I first saw it probably with my mom, I'm guessing, in like high school. And I loved it right away. Every time you watch this film, I think you can spot something new or you react to something differently. But actually, last year, I took a course that involved the study of this film. I'm a student, a grad student at Harvard's Extension School, and I took an amazing class called American Dreams Made in Hollywood that looks at a variety of films, and it explores the so-called American dream and debates whether or not that dream is dead. But within the context of that debate, one of the central themes that the course looked at was this concept of home. And whether it was from Wizard of Oz or The Best Years of Our Lives, that was something we were constantly looking at. And this movie was by far one of my favorite to talk about. And I'm so glad I had the chance to revisit it with people who love it just as much as I do and really want to get into every nitty gritty detail. Every nitty gritty detail, specifically the details today of Minute 48, which starts with Peggy getting Fred into bed, you know, making him comfortable. And it ends with uh, her mother doing the same thing for Al. Uh, This is the minute where I started to be like, what the? And then I remembered that they have told us that Peggy works in a hospital. So her being totally fine with like, she's very expert. Like she is just tucking things and unbuckling things and very no nonsense. And that makes sense if you think of her as like a nurse, basically. Yeah, I think it does. One of the the things I've said about this movie before is that, and I think we'll talk about over the coming minutes, is that the movie, as much as it's about those three men, is just as much about the three women and all the women within it. When you look at it through that lens, I think the movie provides even more content and richness for the viewer. But yeah, I agree. She was just... She was a real trooper in helping (laughs) this drunk, sleepy man go to bed and giving up her room for his comfort. Mm -hmm. I realized as I am paused in this minute, do we think that's her diploma on the wall next to the door? It's got to be, right? Oh, it looks like it. It really does look like it. So this is a well-educated woman. I am kind of obsessed with her her necklace and watch her glinting in the light the low light not as much a fan of the ribbon belt i guess (laughs) with the original it makes sense like she she looks good and then it absolutely kills me later when she's leaving the room when she bends over and she like flips her hair back to get it out of her face and that just like cupid shoots an arrow right into my heart every time i watch that in this minute (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, Teresa Wright, I mean, she f- pops on a screen. There's no questioning that. Yeah, it's funny. I knew of this movie, had seen it, but I took a class in college that was a propaganda course, a political science course analyzing propaganda using World War II as a case study. So I did kind of what you did with Best Years of Our Lives, but with Mrs. Miniver. Mm. And so I feel like... I almost wonder if there is a paper to be written using those two films as bookends. I'm sure there is. Of the getting into the war and then the coming home from the war. And our through line is Teresa Wright. (laughs) I mean, that could be a podcast in and of itself. Definitely a worthy topic. Do you hear that, Jim? You can never retire. (laughs) He's sworn that this is his last one, but he'll never be free of us. And yeah, he'll get sucked back in somehow. We all do, right? We all do, right? I love this bed. It's so frilly. I I don't love it for myself. I love that it exists, if that makes sense. Looks very, very comfortable. And that blanket that she pulls over him, Mm. fabulous. Yes. Sometimes I wish, I, I sometimes, like, the only thing I don't like about black and white is sometimes I wish I knew what the colors really looked like. I imagine it being like a purpley. I kind of did too. No like the pink, purple, mauve sort of color. Because it's so shiny. Like, clearly it's satin, but... Yeah. I love how she pulls it up and it goes a little bit too high, and she kind of debates leaving it and then pulls it down for him. <laughs> like, uh, he's drunk, yep. So, I know you're new here, but I guess we have to talk about not that Peggy. Yes. Oh, please. I'm so ready to talk about that dialogue. <laughs> you got so excited when I first sent you these minutes. You were like, yes. <laughs> This is, I mean, if you, there are a handful of minutes, if I got to choose, like if you said, Sarah, pick your top five, there are plenty to choose from, but one of these minutes absolutely would have made it in. But what I love about it is this scene and the ones that follow, you could watch it and there's, you know, the the actress, they're, all the roles are displayed super. Herbly. These women, you know, the men drunken, sleeping, everyone's acting is just top of their game. But also the dialogue here, every single word, even though these are very quick exchanges, is just packed with so much meaning. And I would love to talk about that. I'm not that Peggy. So, <laughs> but so that happens, you know, Fred grabs her. She identifies herself. Fred grabs her. I, I do like her. Don't you remember? I'm Peggy. But she's very <laughs> playful. She's not like accusing him. Like, don't you remember me? But so playful. And she jokingly says, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not that Peggy, implying, you know, she's joking around, but not a peg, a Peggy from Fred's past. And what's also so worth noting is his response, which is, you know, it's, it's too bad or that's too bad. But I would watch, you, you could watch that scene and not really think anything of it. And it's just a cute little exchange between the two of them. And, you know, he's half drunk he's he's drunk he's full-on drunk (laughs) and and he's half asleep but at the same time that brief exchange harkens back to really the central theme of that the movie the whole movie could really be boiled down if you had to pick two lines of dialogue i could make an argument that it could be this exchange because she's saying i'm not that peggy you know and jokingly implying that 
you know, a Peggy of the past. And then he says, that's too bad, which is such a, you know, the response when you knowing having seen the whole movie that this is a woman that, you know, he ends up with and that he still would prefer that it was the other Peggy. It comes back to the title, which is Best Years of Our Lives. But the whole time, the title is intentionally ambiguous. And I don't know how much, if you don't mind humoring me, I'll <laughs> keep going. That is the one hard thing about sharing this project with other hosts is we don't know what they've said about the movie. Yeah. So it's all a surprise right. once it starts coming out. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you know, when you go to the title, Best Years of Our Lives, just quickly, you know, what are the best years? Is it the time before the war? Is it the time after? And that's a debate that you have, I'm sure you'll have throughout this podcast, and really is a debate through every minute of the film. But I would argue that if you were making a list, a pro-con list, determining what the best years were, you could take this very brief exchange between Peggy and Fred, and you could throw it in the column that advocates that the best years were behind them. In that very, very, very brief exchange, there's just something so telling about, you know, even though it's made in jest on both sides, there is such truth at the heart of that very quick exchange. Yeah, I'm fascinated by their relationship and how it grows throughout the movie because Megan and I pointed out when they meet up at the bar and they're sitting in the booth and everything, she's humoring him. Yeah. Uh, She might think he's (laughs) cute, but it's not like this is love at first sight. He is drunkenly monologuing and she is humoring him because her dad isn't ready to go home. Like, that's it. That's (laughs) the exchange. And what I love is that their relationship builds throughout the movie, but it also does point out that here in these minutes, she's the one driving the car. She's putting him to bed. She's very no-nonsense. She's very in control. And I like that the messier the relationship gets and the deeper she falls, the more her age is really revealed like she's actually very young she doesn't read as young in these minutes but she absolutely will later as someone <laughs> was a teenage girl and convinced she was in love and grown-ups pointing out like you need to take a step back and calm down <laughs> is, is that when she's like i'm gonna break that marriage up Yeah, she's like, I've made a decision. I've come to the conclusion. And then it's like, her parents are like, you've come to the wrong conclusion, sweetheart. (laughs) Slow down, honey. So. Sorry, we make sure you said spoiler alert, but it's also a movie from 1946. So, oops. Yeah. I feel like that is fair. But they do love it. Like, they work well. We see how they kind of fit together, but Mm -hmm. it isn't this perfect, oh, they were always meant to be. It was love. You know, like I said, it wasn't love at first sight. It was not they were always meant to be. They just grow to like each other. To the point where they get together. <laughs> and I think, you know, the point you make about how she's you know, driving the car and humoring him and taking care of him. It's really just like these women were the caretakers. And not just in these scenes, but they were holding down the fort at home. They were the ones keeping things together and running until these men returned. And the men come back and they're not necessarily ready to go back to their old lives. But, (laughs) you know, but the women, too, are still in this mode of we are the ones, you know, holding down the fort and keeping things together at home. You see that with Peggy, like that's her mindset. And gradually, as time progresses, as you mentioned, you see the immaturity, you know, reveal itself. But I I definitely think, you know, her kind of snapping into that caretaker mode is totally what you see at the beginning. 
I was going to say, Tyrion, should we mention what we've sort of nicknamed this movie? Oh, yeah. (laughs) What? So it might be called The Best Years of Our Lives, but we also think it's, how do we put it? It's it's like, men are dumb. (laughs) Men make decisions that aren't in their best interest. Consistently. (laughs) Because I I was explaining that I literally spent the last, I would say, 20-ish minutes of the film wanting to, like, scream at every man on film. Basically, from when Wilma comes, although they do it throughout. Actually, you were talking about the three women, and one of the things that really surprised me watching this movie, and I don't have any minutes with her, so I'm keeping it to a minimum, I got very ride-or-die for Marie, and very defensive that... (laughs) she is just living her life and she happens to be married to someone who she does not fit with who she met during the war and married after less than 20 like i i get very upset that she is painted as this horrible person when actually she's a completely reasonable person and things get a little nasty when they break up but how many marriages do you know that have ended without like harsh words said on both sides that's that's just what happens when a relationship dissolves like it's ugly but i think every decision she makes makes perfect sense like i don't think you get to condemn someone because they were working supporting themselves happy with what they were doing had married a cute guy who they thought they got along with and then he came home and it was like oh crap we have nothing in common and we hate each other Yes, I wouldn't wrong her for their separation, but don't you think she's so harsh on him that, you know, she wants a life bigger than what his income can afford? And I read it like she fell in love with the soldier, you know, the glam, you know, the glory of being with this soldier. And then, but he comes home and he's not a soldier anymore. And she doesn't want to be with the guy who just works. What is he? He works at the drugstore. Yeah. Yeah. I just think. I Oh, man, we are on different sides of this coin tyranny because I just think she is – I am not a fan. I am not a fan. <laughs> but not in my minute. It's not in my minute. Yeah. And I, I think she's terrible for him and ter- he's terrible for her. And she is kind of shallow, but, like, she's the bad guy, you know? She's keeping them apart. They've got to bust up that marriage. And it's like, no, honey, it's falling apart on its own. You don't need to worry about that. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. That's awful. But well, I mean, the divorce rate did go up after World War Two. It did, yeah, so. because all these people got married to people they didn't know. Well, yeah, there's a. I just found a New York Times article from 1946 called "The Wives of War Divorces," and it says more than half of America's 1.5 million war wed GIs have returned. Already, one out of four of these 800,000 men is entangled in divorce proceedings. Yeah. Experts are predicting by 1950, a million of these wartime marriages or two out of three will end in divorce. And then there's this, the cheesiest cartoon that accompanies this. But yes. <laughs> and that is because, you know, they were all getting married quickly before, but also because of the PTSD. Mm. That they were coming back with and these couples not, I mean, we're just really figuring this out and learning about it. But I think that's also something that you see really throughout this whole movie is that the PTSD and what was this unsaid, unknown, misunderstood trauma that yeah. these men were coming home with. Well, and I think it's interesting to keep in mind that originally before um, Harold Russell was cast, Homer just had really bad PTSD. He was Mm. supposed to only have a mental problem coming home from the war and they rewrote it once they found 
someone who could act who had the physical disability. But that story between Homer and Wilma would have played very similarly. Different different dialogue, different lines. But that whole idea was already there. They were able to write and pin that whole storyline just on PTSD. Although they didn't call it that at the time. I have this minute paused on second 20 and they are just, she is laughing. It's when she's been pulled down. She's got her hands out and she's laughing and her hair, she looks very modern. She actually looks a lot like my pictures of my aunt from like right before I was born in the early 80s. And he's clearly smiling and he looks like he's kissing her shoulder. And it's just like, this is such a happy moment for them. But you're right, it's not, this sounds weird to say, but it's not a real moment. It's a funny, cute moment, but it has no depth to it yet between the two of them. It's superficial. Thank you for knowing words. You're welcome. Sometimes I know them, sometimes I don't. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm just like watching her hair. I'm kind of obsessed with it. And like the one rogue curl that is clearly driving her nuts. But yeah, she tucks him in and gets... Well, I don't think we know what she... I guess you can tell it's pajamas that she picks up from the chair. And I love the way she, like, surveys the room real quick before she turns out the light and leaves. Like, let me just make sure I've got everything settled for this guy. Yeah. And then I think next it goes to the scene with Alan Millie, right? It switches right to that. Yes! Yes, she's taking off his dog tags, which I always was like, uh, that. I was surprised they didn't make a thing out of that, of him trying to stop her or something. Well, he does. I mean, he kind of shouts something and is resistant for a very brief second. I thought that was because it got caught on his nose. Yeah, I thought so too. I think that is what it was, but I think it's... (laughs) That's all he could do. I think it's meant, yeah, in his drunken haze, but I think it's meant to symbolize he has this reaction, this immediate physical reaction that's verbalized in this, you know, like this jumble of words. But I saw it as him being resistant. I mean, she's removing the dog tag, something that he's had on for X amount of time, and he's resistant to, you know, removing this last piece, physical article from his time in the army. Yeah, because she would have had to get him out of that whole uniform yeah yeah that's the last piece so i thought wow i mean there's only so much they can do in the movie but i thought it was interesting that he's asleep and drunk and still he's you know shouting whatever he is shouting right as she pulls it up he still does resist yeah and then you notice as soon as it's off and he isn't being like physically reminded of it anymore he's fine and that's when he goes to like humming and singing the song Mm -hmm. which what do you think he's humming i thought it was like i can't tell but it seems like it's some kind of fight song or anthem based on the way he pumps his fist so here's the problem i'm being (laughs) mocked by this movie he starts out (laughs) humming among my souvenirs you can hear him say the word souvenirs at one point but then that doesn't make any sense with the fist because that's not that's what they were dancing to in the thing but he says is it in this minute or the next one at one point maybe it's in the next minute when he's lying down maybe he starts out singing a fight song and he transitions to that because sarah infamously i think that's what it is yeah 
I couldn't identify among my souvenirs initially when he requests the song, and it's it's very clearly requested if you look at the closed captioning. So I thought the fact that I can now pick it out when someone is drunkenly humming it was my brain like trying to overcompensate for not having recognized it earlier in the film. Interesting. See, you always learn something new about this film every time you watch it. So I'm going to be looking out for that next time. Ooh, I have a lot to say about this room and how much I love it, but I guess I'll save it for next minute. But yes, yeah, it's got to be some sort of fight song. And I wonder if like, if her taking off the dog text like rouses him enough to be sing- or, or I don't know. It's really hard to judge. He's in poor shape. <laughs> he's in poor shape. And yet he still has the energy to this like kind of tug of war between them. That's funny. But also he's just resisting. She's trying to put him back into his pajamas and he's just resisting stepping back into that role and stepping into his civilian clothing. Even again, as I said, as drunk and as sleepy as he is, he's still putting up a fight. And I wonder, we'll see uh, at the beginning of the next minute, a little bit of that transition for him. And we can talk about it tomorrow. (laughs) Yay! Look at that smooth transition. Wow, I'm good. So Megan and I did a podcast together, MASH Minute. Our episodes are still up, but we are also going to be remastering those episodes and re-releasing them with special episodes. We're going to watch movies related and things that came up on the show a million times. And I will finally, finally see the long goodbye. You haven't seen that one? I forgot that. See, it's been so long you didn't even remember that that's why I didn't remember. I was told I must see it. So, I mean, I finally tracked down a copy of Spies. Yeah. At the same time someone gave us a copy of Spies. So it was good. quite the week. It was quite, it was the, quite week. the week. So Mash Minute will return, which sounds like a sequel, but it's not. It's just the same thing, but with supplemental material. And Sarah, did you have anything that you want to plug or advertise here at the end? Nothing. Just your podcast, Tyranny of Hagen. <laughs> That's it. I've got nothing to plug. Don't want to talk about uh, the vibrant city life of New York in October 2020. <laughs> um nope i will pass on that (laughs) megan where can listeners find the best minute well there's a facebook group and you should go to it people are looking for the best minute podcast that's the one you're listening to now more can be found on apple Podcasts, spotify google play or at the main site thebestminutes.com There's a Facebook group, Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe. And for these podcasts, the Facebook group is really active. People talking, sharing ideas, theories, all sorts of fun stuff. There's also Twitter. The handle is at The Best Minutes. So if you do not have Facebook, there are still ways to interact with the show. And we will be back tomorrow with another episode of The Best Minutes Podcast. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.